God chooses to set his love on his people, and for that, his greatness should be proclaimed. Happy New Year! 2022 was quite a year, wasn't it? As Luke mentioned in his prayer, there was Russia's invasion of Ukraine. There were other things that happened. There was the Beijing Olympics. There was the Shanghai lockdown. The death of Queen Elizabeth II. Revolutions in Iran. And then the recent loosening of COVID restrictions here. So the coming of a new calendar year is a time when we can look back and look forward. We can look back on all that happened this past year in the world, in our city, in our church, and in our lives, and consider how we got from January of last year to January of this year. Who could have predicted that 2022 would end with pretty much all of us catching COVID together. And I and my family had no idea that by the end of 2022, we would be uh, joining you at, at WSBC as members and, and be here for the COVID party. But, but if you're here and you haven't caught COVID yet, don't feel left out, no hurry. At this point, many of you may have some hope for 2023. Perhaps we can make travel plans now. Perhaps the economy will improve. Perhaps fill in the blank in your life will, will finally happen this year. But whatever the case, I wonder if many of you feel, feel tired and are just thinking, well, I hope this or that in my life will change or I hope this or that in my life will get better. And consider that in order for the new year to start, last year had to end, didn't it? Some of you may be happy that 2022 is over. Others, for others, it may be bittersweet. Oftentimes, in order for the, the new to come, the old must pass away. That's what happens in transitions, isn't it? One clear transition, major transition in the Bible is from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament. The last book in the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. This morning we'll be beginning a sermon series in the book of Malachi. It's a fairly short book, so it will be a fairly short sermon series. The plan is six sermons in Malachi. Malachi is the last in what is often called the Minor Prophets. Isaiah, which you heard Luke preach on last week and before then as well, would be called a Major Prophet. The minor prophets are not minor prophets because they are less significant than the major prophets. This is not professional sports in which you have the minor leagues and the major leagues. And Malachi just hasn't made it to the bigs yet. No, the minor prophets are simply called that because these books are shorter. But remember that this is God's word and it's worthy of our attention. Even if Malachi might not be the first book that you think of, if you haven't decided where to read for your morning devotions. 
perhaps similarly to the end of 2022, looking for rays of hope, it would seem that the people of Israel at the time of Malachi also were looking for hope. Yes, the people of Israel were back, out of exile, in the promised land. But things still were not the same. Yes, the temple was rebuilt. But it was not nearly as impressive as the temple that Solomon built. And whatever happened to the promise to David of his offspring ruling forever, the people of Israel have many questions for God in the book of Malachi, and God will answer those questions. So the book of Malachi fittingly ends the Old Testament with rays of hope, pointing hundreds of years ahead to the coming of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, please open to the book of Malachi. If it's easier to find the beginning of the New Testament, you could open to the very first page of the book of Matthew and just flip a few pages back, and you'll be at the beginning of the book of Malachi. You can also read it printed in your bulletin. The sermon passage this morning is from Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Malachi 1, verses 1 to 5. Listen as I read. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. If I had to sum up the main idea of this passage in one simple sentence for us this morning, it would be this. God chooses to set his love on his people, and for that, his greatness should be proclaimed. God chooses to set his love on his people, and for that, his greatness should be proclaimed. The sermon will have five points. The first point is more of an introduction to the whole book as it goes with the first verse. And the next four points will unpack the main point. Just as a heads up in seeking to try to outline this sermon along with the flow of the passage, the length of each point will not be the same. Sometimes, or oftentimes, sermons can be split up neatly into three points, uh, but this morning will not, that will not be the case. So let me list the five points ahead of time, and we'll go through them again as they come. So first is God's word spoken to Malachi, chapter 1, verse 1. Second is God's love stated in chapter 1, verse 2a. Third is God's love questioned, chapter 1, verse 2b. Four is God's love displayed, chapter 1, verse 2c to verse 4. And fifth is God's love responded to, chapter 1, verse 5. So God's word spoken to Malachi, 
God's love stated, God's love questioned, God's love displayed, and God's love responded to. So first point one, God's word spoken to Malachi. Look again with me at verse one. It says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now this is a very brief introduction to the book of Malachi. We're given no information about who Malachi is. And Malachi's name does not appear anywhere else in the Bible. In fact, there is even the possibility that Malachi is not the name of the prophet because the word Malachi can simply have the meaning, my messenger. And yet, uh, if we compare it with the other minor prophets, with the other prophetic books, it, it would make sense if Malachi is the name of the prophet, just as other books of the Bible begin with the stating of the author. It also wouldn't be the first time the Bible uses a name that is full of meaning. Malachi the prophet truly is God's messenger. We're also reminded here that this is the word of the Lord. Malachi in his role as prophet is not meant to be speaking his own words. Malachi is meant to be a mouthpiece for God. A prophet is meant to speak for God, and that is Malachi's role. The book of Malachi is God's word. In addition, from this brief introduction, it's also clearly stated that this is God's word to Israel. The people of Israel are meant to be the receivers of this prophecy. This is a prophecy for God's people. One thing that is missing in this introduction, but that would be helpful to know for context, is the time of Malachi's prophecy. From studying the book as a whole, we can find much that is directly linked with teaching from Ezra and Nehemiah. And so it makes sense if Malachi lived around the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra speaks of the rebuilding of the temple, and Nehemiah speaks of the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. The book of Malachi speaks of the temple, so that helps us know that this book was written after the rebuilding of the temple, after the people of Israel returned from exile. The exile occurred as God's discipline for his people. When we read First and Second Kings, we read of Wicked king after wicked king who led the Israelites down a continued path of rebellion against God. Occasionally there would be a, a king who feared God in Judah, but for the most part, the Israelites continued in their disobedience. God used the nations of Assyria and then Babylon to bring judgment upon first Israel and then Judah as a significant portion of the population of Israel were taken into exile. By the time of Malachi, because of the kindness and mercy of God, the Israelites were back in their own land. And so if you can put yourself in the sandals of the people of Israel at that time, God had shown his faithfulness to them in bringing them back into the land of Israel, and yet still much seems to be not as it should be. The older generation who remembered the glories of the former temple wept at seeing the rebuilding of the new one. Israel seems to be a small and insignificant people amidst the superpowers that had dominated the Middle East at that time. So it's at this time that perhaps the Israelites are wondering, 
what is God doing? When will God act again? And it's in this context that Malachi's prophecy comes. The book of Malachi is unique in how Malachi uses several disputations in structuring the book. So in our sermon text for this morning, verses 2 to 5 is the first disputation. And there are a total of six disputations in the book of Malachi. So what is a disputation? A disputation was helpfully described by one commentator, Douglas Stewart, as having, having four elements, four parts. Assertion, questioning, response, and implication. So God makes an assertion. He makes a statement. The Israelites respond with a question or, or questions. And then God responds to Israel and makes further implications for Israel. This form of assertion, questioning, response, and implication parallels the second through fifth points for the sermon this morning. Malachi uses this back-and-forth structure in which God makes statements and answers questions that the Israelites likely would have had in a way that addresses several issues among the Israelites in regards to their relationships with God and their relationships with others. So this basic structure exists six times. Uh, this structure is not rigid, but is quite flexible. Sometimes it's shorter, sometimes it's longer. We'll see it several more times as we go through the book of Malachi. And in considering that this is God's word for us, may this be an encouragement for us not to neglect less well-known portions of the Bible. All of God's word is his word to us. Not only the sections that are more familiar or that may seem easier to understand on a first reading. For many of you, the, the new year may be a, a good time to start a new Bible reading plan. In this way, we can seek to help keep ourselves accountable for reading all of God's Word in a somewhat systematic way. If Malachi is an unfamiliar book because you haven't read to the end of the Old Testament, I would encourage you to to try to read the whole Bible, and perhaps try to do it in a year. There's no law that this is something Christians could do, but this can be a, a good and healthy habit. And talk to other members at WSBC about it. Perhaps find someone you can pair up with, uh, someone who can use the same Bible reading plan with you this coming year, and, and ask you about it throughout the year. That brings us to the end of point number one, God's word spoken by Malachi. Point two is God's love stated. Look again at the very first sentence in verse two. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Here we have God's assertion, God's statement. God says to Israel, I have loved you. This is how Malachi begins his book. God tells Israel of his love. So stop and, and take in the importance and magnitude of this statement. God has chosen to show love to his people, to Israel, and God wants to remind Israel of his love. God wants Israel to hear from his own mouth via the prophet Malachi, I have loved you. And God knows what he is talking about 
when he speaks of love. I recently was reading a book by Paul Tripp, and he talks of meeting his future wife as a teenager. Maybe he was 16 or 17. He said that he knew that this was the woman he wanted to marry, and he waited for the perfect time to, to straight up tell her, I love you. She responded by telling him, never say that to me again. You don't know what love is. And yes, they've been married for some time now, but at the time, I think she was right. Saying I love you is a powerful statement, but perhaps it has a deeper and fuller meaning than we often think. Paul Tripp's future wife would not be content with butterflies in the stomach kind of feeling uh, that this other teenager called love. There needed to be something more, perhaps evidence of this young man's love and willingness to sacrifice before she could accept the words, I love you, said by him. For my bachelor party, after go-karting, which by the way, Josh is very good at go-karting, Gabe Almeida got the ball rolling on keeping the party going and sending the ambiance for more good late night conversation with the guys. And at one point, each of the guys started taking turns giving me a bit of advice. And one of the guys, Doug Dyer, who had been married the year before, gave some, some really simple but profound advice. He told me to remember to say, I love you to my wife often. There's something good and right about saying I love you to someone that you love. And I think I understand more now of what love calls for than I did the night of my bachelor party. But even as I think of it, as good as love between two humans can be, it's still tainted by the effects of sin. There's still selfishness and pride mixed in with love. But God's love is not tainted by sin. When he speaks of love, he knows exactly what love is, because God is love. The Godhead forever loved within the Trinity, and after creating humanity in the course of human history, God set his love on, the, on his people Israel, which led to his setting his love on his people, the church. So just as God said to his people Israel, I have loved you, we can apply that today to his church. God has loved us. So brothers and sisters at WSBC, God has loved you. God does love you. He has chosen you not only individually, but as members of his church, his chosen people, the true Israel. And God's love for his people is pure and holy. It's a jealous and fierce love. It's a pursuing, forgiving, compassionate love. I can think of no better way for us to start the new year than for us to be growing in our understanding of the unsearchable depths of God's love for us. May that be our prayer, that our understanding of God's love would deepen in the next few weeks and months. It's a multifaceted love. Both this morning's sermon and the, the passage that Brian Lowe will be preaching on next week only impact certain aspects of the riches of God's love. When God says something, we know it is trustworthy and true. And God has stated to his people, I love you. And so we conclude our second point, God's love stated. 
That brings us to our third point, God's love questioned in the middle of part of verse 2. God's statement is replied to, but you say, how have you loved us? The people of Israel ask God, how have you loved us? This does not necessarily mean the people of Israel deeply doubt the truth of God's love, but at the very least, the people of Israel are confused. They don't see clear evidence of God's love, and so they ask God this question, God, how have you loved us? There may be times in your life when you've wanted to ask God a similar question, or times when you've wanted to express to God that it's really hard to see his love for you. I'm not necessarily encouraging you to have these questions or doubts, but I imagine, but I imagine that at some point in our lives, we may all struggle with these kinds of questions and doubts. Perhaps those close to us that we expected to love us haven't loved us as we thought they would. Perhaps there have been times when we expected the love of others, but instead felt rejection. And so our experiences relating with other sinful humans have marred our understanding and expectations of what love could be and of what God's love is like. But even in these times as we bring our doubts and questions before God, God is gracious in his response. So bring your honest questions before God. And may he open your eyes to his love for you. With that, we close our brief third point, God's love question. That brings us to our fourth point. God's love displayed. We see this point from the third part of verse 2 until the end of verse 4. Here we read God's answer to Israel's question. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. At first, this may seem a strange way for God to point to his love for his people. In order to better understand this passage, we want to better understand what the Israelites would have thought of when they first heard these words. When God says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother? God is bringing the story of Jacob and Esau back to mind for the Israelites. In the book of Genesis, we read of God's promised blessing to Abraham of a land and a people who will live in God's place. Abraham's son was Isaac, and Isaac had twin sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau and Jacob were struggling with one another from before they were born. I know pregnant women can feel their babies kick, but can you imagine pregnant Rebecca knowing that her twin babies were fighting in her tummy? Rebecca then goes to the Lord to ask God what was going on in her womb. And God replied to her in Genesis 25, verse 23, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. 
the older shall serve the younger. From before Esau and Jacob were born, God had a plan for the descendants of Jacob and Esau. Their offspring would become two nations that would be generations long enemies. You may remember how Jacob buys Esau's firstborn birthright and then tricks his father into giving him Esau's blessing. Jacob is no saint, but neither is Esau. After Jacob's trickery, Esau is breathing murderous threats that Jacob's mother takes seriously enough to send her son far away to her relatives to find a wife. Esau is also called Edom, and the descendants of Esau are the people of Edom. Jacob is renamed Israel later in his life, and the descendants of Israel are the people of Israel. Even with their family history, Edom was, Edom was a, consistently an enemy of Israel. In Numbers 20, when Moses sends messengers to Edom to ask for safe passage during Israel's desert wanderings, Edom did not allow them to pass through, and instead came out with a large army. When Israel was taken into exile, Edom took advantage of the situation as they could stay behind and enjoy what Israel lost. The prophets include many warnings of coming judgment upon Edom for their wickedness and for the way that they mistreated God's people. In the beginning of the book of Obadiah, there's a lengthy warning of judgment against Edom. Obadiah verse 10 reads, speaking to Edom, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. The people of Israel would know of these prophecies against their enemies, the people of Edom. We can understand God's judgment of the enemies of Israel as God's protection of his people. And so in order to point to his love for Israel, God points to how he has judged Edom. God's choosing of Israel is contrasted by how God has judged Edom. Even through the time of exile, God has protected his people Israel. But the proud nation of Edom has been judged. Their country has been laid waste. Their heritage is left to wild animals. It would still seem that there's some pride in the people of Edom. They still cling on to the idea that their nation will again become strong and powerful. Edom says, we will rebuild the ruins. But the Lord says he will continue in judgment on the people of Edom. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. God's judging of Israel's enemies is one way God shows his love for Israel as he shows his protection of Israel. Not only that, but God's keeping of Israel alive as a nation shows his blessing towards Israel in contrast to the end of the nation of Edom. God's covenant love involves his sovereign choosing according to his wisdom. Jacob and Esau were twins. There wasn't something particularly good about Jacob that made God choose Jacob. God simply decided to set his love on Jacob and his descendants. Paul further develops this passage from Malachi in the section from Romans 9 that you heard read earlier in the service. We read, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. There may be some who read the beginning of Malachi and ask, is there injustice on God's part? Paul says, no way. God has every right to have mercy on whom he will choose and have compassion on whom he will choose. In other words, the choice of who God loves and how God loves is up to God. That makes sense, doesn't it? God is God. We as humans tend to want to think that there's something good about us that caused, us to, that caused God to love us. Perhaps God knew that I would make a really good Christian, and so he chose me. Perhaps God noticed I was already a really nice person, and he just wanted to make me that much nicer, and so he chose me. Perhaps God noticed I was really smart and wanted to use my smartness for good instead of evil. But this thinking is not only silly, it's dangerous. God didn't love us because we were lovable. We can't point to something good in us and say, this is why God loved us. God loved us despite the fact that we were his enemies, despite the fact that we were rejecting him. God loved us despite the fact that he knows our wickedness even better than we do. When we read of God's choosing of Jacob and God's judging of Israel, we're reading of, of two groups of people that deserved God's judgment. Israel deserved the same demise that Edom did. And yet, because God set his love on Israel, God spared Israel. Yes, God disciplined Israel, but he showed great mercy to Israel. Did God show patience and mercy to Edom as well? Yes, to some extent during their long history, I think we can say that he did. But God chose to love Israel in a way unlike which he loved any other nation. God shows a unique kind of covenant love to the people that he has chosen. And we can't blame God for that. When a young man wants to be married, we expect him to choose to set his love on one woman. There would be a major problem if he wanted to love every woman in the same way. The image of Israel as God's bride develops in the New Testament into the image of the church as the bride of Christ. God set his love on Israel despite Israel's unfaithfulness. Jesus sets his love on the church despite how messy the church can be. I think in hearing sermons from 1 Corinthians, you've, you've heard how messy the and thought on how messy the church can be. Brothers and sisters, may we be astonished by the fact that Jesus would choose the church as his bride. And if you're a non-Christian here today who is wondering if God loves you, the question isn't one of guessing whether or not God has chosen you. The question for you is how you will respond to the love that God has shown and the invitation that Christ offers. You may feel dirty and unworthy of the love of God. All of us are. But despite of our sin, which causes our shame, God sent Jesus to die on the cross to wash our sins away. The bride of Christ must be pure, and our sins have been washed away at the cross. The invitation that Jesus gives you is to repent, to turn away from your sins, and to believe in who Jesus is and what he has done. 
I would love to talk more about this with you, and so would other members at WSBC. For those who are Christians here this morning, for members of Christ's bride, the church, meditate on what God has done. Consider how the bride of Christ is meant to be pure. Human marriages at their very best are only a faint shadow of how Christ loves the church. God should be angry at all of us forever, but instead, he has showed us such great mercy. God's love was displayed by his choosing of Israel, and when Christ came, God's love was displayed in his choosing of the church. So what should be the response to this display of God's love? That brings us to our fifth and final point. God's love responded to. Look again with me at verse 5. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This fifth and final point corresponds with the second half of the main point. How should God's love be responded to? His greatness should be proclaimed. Speaking of how Edom is judged, God says that Israel will see this, and this will cause Israel to say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. At this time in world history, pretty much every other nation had their own gods. Assyrian gods, Babylonian gods, Egyptian gods. And it would be likely that other nations would think that Israel's god was just like their gods. But the people of Israel knew that the god they worshipped was different. The god of Israel wasn't simply the god of Israel. He was the god who created the whole world and ruled over the world. And yet he chose to have a special relationship with the people of Israel. And so the God of Israel, the true God, deserves worship not only in Israel, but outside the borders of Israel. The God of Israel deserves to be recognized not only in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. God's love is a testimony to God's greatness and God's power, and when we see this, we should speak of it. God is not a God who is limited to a certain territory. In today's world, many Chinese friends may think of Christianity as a Western religion. Gabe mentioned this in his sermon a few weeks ago as well. Even some of you here in this room may have been interested in Western culture before God used that to lead you to exploring the Bible and Christianity. At different times in the history of the church, Christianity may be associated with different areas of the world. But throughout all world history, and even before time began, God is God over the whole world. God is not a God who can be constrained by any border. Many times throughout the Old Testament, God demonstrates his power in a way that surrounding nations see that the Lord is great beyond the border of Israel. God humiliates the Egyptian gods. God humiliates Dagon, the god of the Philistines. And here in Malachi, we see that the judgment of Edom is a testament to God's power and God's love for his people. God seeks to have his glory proclaimed among the nations. Today as well, there's a problem if people simply think of Christianity as a Western religion. So how might our lives as a church proclaim to the world that God is great beyond the border of any nation?
If you're from the West, help explain to your non-Christian friends and colleagues how Jesus has changed your life. We don't want people to assume that everything you do differently is because of your culture and background. Yes, there's some things that you do differently because of your culture and background. But what do you do differently? How do you live differently because you are in Christ? So you want to be able to kindly correct your friends. No, this, I don't go to church because I'm from America. I'm not part of a, a church because I'm from this country or that, but, but no, it's because I'm a Christian. As you invite people into your life and share why you decide to live the way that you live, may those around you from different cultures see that you lived your life in order to worship God. Yes, you may be different and you should be different, but may those differences be the sweet aroma of Christ to those who are being saved. And if you're from the East, what does it look like for you to live in a way that proclaims that God is the God beyond the border of any nation? What does it look like for you to show that you have not given up your national identity when you became a Christian? What does it look like to show that actually you can love your family better now than ever before because Christ loved you first? What does it look like for you to talk about these things and share about these things with those who think you've become quite strange. These are not easy things to do. But may God continue to cause you to be the sweet aroma of Christ to those who are being saved. And whether from west or east, from north or south, consider that just as God's choosing of Israel and steadfast love towards Israel is testimony to how great he is, God's choosing of the church and steadfast love towards the church is testimony to how great he is today. Nations will come and go. Whatever happened to Edom, whatever happened to Babylon, whatever happened to Rome. But the church will remain until Jesus Christ returns. WSBC has a unique opportunity as a local church to proclaim that God is God of this whole world as people from many nations come together to worship him. As we as a church become more conformed to the image of Christ, may that be a testimony to all those watching that our God is God over this whole world. Our God has every right to judge, and yet in his perfect love, he has chosen to show mercy to us. In the church, may the world witness the love of God in getting a taste of God's love for us and our love for one another. And may others join in proclaiming great is the Lord. In closing, please listen as I read these words that Paul wrote in Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21. Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21, that beautifully express some of the truths we have been considering this morning. For this reason, so this is Paul writing, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth 
and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you for you are glorious. We praise you for you are the God of love. And Lord, we pray that we would come to a better understanding of your love. Lord, we pray that, that you would remind us of your love for you um, in times of worry, in times of doubt. And Lord, we pray that you would spur us on by your word to love others well. Lord, we, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word for us. We thank you for the way that you have loved your church. In Jesus' name, amen.